You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. On today's episode, I speak with Victor Wong. Victor is an economic growth expert. He's the founder and CEO of Right Start, a campaign fighting to rebuild the economy by making entrepreneurial opportunity available to all. Previously, he was vice president of entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation, the world's leading philanthropy supporting entrepreneurs with an endowment of $2 billion. His economic development clients include the World Bank, Ford Foundation, Inter-American Development Bank, and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Victor pioneered the use of the metaphor rainforest in a business context. He applied it to show how communities can replicate the historic innovation dynamics of Silicon Valley. His co-authored book, The Rainforest, was awarded Book of the Year Gold Medal by Forward Reviews for a big idea that defines a way of thinking. Victor was co-founder and CEO of his own startup, Liquidity, a Silicon Valley venture-backed firm making safe drinking water filtration based on nanotech manufacturing. He led the company through product launch, early revenues, and winning the TechCrunch Disrupt Startup Competition. Sorry, we didn't touch so much on that. We were talking more about the big picture. He has worked as a startup ecosystem builder, startup CEO, VC, lawyer, book author, and at Larda Commercializing Government Technology. He's also been a Kauffman Fellow, which was started by the Kauffman Foundation, but is a separate organization. Victor received his bachelor degree with honors from Harvard University, where he studied government, plus additional studies in computer science. He received his law degree from the University of Chicago. On this episode, we discussed the vision of inclusive access to entrepreneurship that Victor has. Is there a difference between high-tech startups and Main Street businesses? Lessons from working with successful ecosystem builders, the importance of culture within companies and also between companies and how people treat each other in the ecosystem, love and fear as motivators, and what you can personally do to support entrepreneurs in your community and at the national level. If you love entrepreneurship, you'll love this episode. Stay tuned. Victor, welcome to Startups for Good. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Miles. Great to be here. So to jump right in, I'd like to ask you, which matters more, high-tech startups or small businesses? You know, people ask that question all the time. And I think so much of our brains have been shaped to try to divide them into these two distinct categories. But the way I look at it is, I think the, the internet has changed so much that tech enablement, these tools for tech enabling businesses uh, mean all kinds of businesses are tech businesses now. And all businesses can innovate and transform themselves and compete as tech enabled businesses. And if you look at you know the great transformations of the last few years, they've been in sectors that were not considered tech sectors from taxis and hotels to food delivery services. Tech became a tool for enablement. And now we're finding that tech is actually changing the types of businesses that you could actually consider high growth. So I see more and more of companies getting venture 
equity investing now that are companies that are doing consumer products that would be former, you know, former Kickstarter projects or innovations that people have created in their own communities. And I've just seen that more and more. And I think there's that crossover between what we used to think of as tech versus Main Street businesses that I think is changing. One, one example I like to think a lot about is Ewing Marion Kaufman, who created the Kaufman Foundation, which is the great philanthropy that's supported so many entrepreneurs across America and the world. He started as, so by the 1980s, his business was worth $6 billion when it was acquired by Merrill Dow. And he started, but he started in 1950 as just selling health supplements out of the back of his trunk. So he was basically, you know, selling uh, things like calcium tablets and things like that. Certainly not a venture backable business by any stretch, not a high growth businesses, business as, as you would have imagined back then. But by the 80s, he built, you know, one of the great pharmaceutical companies in America. And so I think that, you know, how we look about how we look at this distinction between high growth, high tech businesses and everything else, I think we need to have a much more open mind to it and realize that all kinds of businesses, there are tech businesses that don't scale and there are businesses that don't look like tech that can actually scale and make a huge transformation. So I, I kind of try to look beyond that distinction, to be honest. So when you're thinking about the right to start, if someone tells you that they're going to stay one employee and not grow, is, is that success? for your organization? Well, right to start. So we're a, a nonprofit, nonpartisan advocacy campaign to, to elevate entrepreneurship as a public priority for everybody. And uh, yes, I mean, everyone should really, it's about this fundamental right that everybody should have to be able to take their lives into their own hands to control their economic destinies. And, and so at right to start, we really talk about that ability for anyone, anywhere, regardless of race, place, or background to be able to start something and create something of, of value in, the, in their lives. And so that's a win, you know, a solopreneur. I mean, if you spend time talking to lots of entrepreneurs, which I have for over two decades, you find that the, no, business is, no business takes like a simple trajectory, like from, you know, it's not like one person wakes up someday and says, I'm going to build a great billion dollar company. Usually it kind of starts in little fits and starts. Like, and someone will say, you know, let me try this thing out on the weekends or in the evenings or a side hustle or a side gig. And it starts to get some traction. They learn a little bit more. They get a little more inspired. They get a little more confident. And as it goes, that process evolves. And that thing that you thought might start out really small ends up becoming really big. And so for me, I've seen it happen where someone starts out as a solopreneur and you know, they start, they get more demand, they start hiring folks, it just starts growing and growing and becomes a successful enterprise. And so the point is, you just never know, you just, you really don't know in advance what's going to take off and what's not going to take off and, and honoring and respecting that individual is actually really important, because that's where everything starts is where someone, you know, has that light bulb go on in their head and that spark that just says, you know, what if, what if the world looked a little bit different? What if this thing existed? And sometimes it's, what if I could make a living doing something like this? Or what if the community, what if I could fill a gap in my community by creating you know, X, Y, or Z? So that's the way I tend to look at it. It's a curved and winding path. And only in retrospect, do you polish it up and tell this a to B straight line story of the founding of the organization. Is that what you're saying? It totally is. I mean, you know, these st stories, if you've been around the venture world long enough, even these great companies that look so obvious in retrospect were so accidental when they were birthed. I mean, Twitter was kind of an accident of a company uh, when it got started. Uber was kind of an accident of a company. And when Uber got going, uh, none of the founders of Uber wanted to actually run the company because they didn't want to be taxi dispatchers. 
And, and you just see that type of story play out over and over again, which is great things are birthed through a series of lucky accidents. And serendipity is really what drives so much of entrepreneurial creation, especially in the early parts. As it, as, it, as it gets more momentum and traction and you start to build up a product and customers and market, it becomes more predictable. But in the very beginning of something, it's always unpredictable. And you've got to really nurture and fan the flames of these types of early things because they, they can go in so many directions. That's why it's important to keep it easy to start, you're saying, because the more things we have that begin, the more opportunities we have to build great companies. It really is. It's, you know, you've got to, uh, if to have a good bottom of the funnel, you've got to have a good top of the funnel. And I, I like to say that entrepreneurs don't die from a single blow. They die deaths of a million cuts. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is you've got to really remove all those cuts, all those little things that get in the way, those million little insults and injuries that keep entrepreneurs from starting their businesses and growing them are so important because especially for people in communities that maybe have been underserved or not fully included in the past, the more that you can remove those little cuts and barriers and things that stop them early on, the better the funnel is going to be as you go down and you'll have more companies later on that are more successful if you can reduce the, the things that get in the way at the front end. And so I think that that's really important. It, it gets neglected a lot because you know, those little types of barriers that entrepreneurs face early on don't get, they don't sound really big. It's, you know, the one person that blows off, you know, a phone call or an email, or it's, you know, a hundred dollar fee that you had to pay somewhere, some, somehow, or a form that you forgot to file somewhere or the extra week it spends to try to stand in line to do something or to get in the door of a place or to get access to a loan or open a bank account. All those things add up. And it's just that when you add them up, you realize that as a whole, in the aggregate, they're actually quite significant. Individually, you think they're not a big deal, but in the aggregate, they become big. And, and that's the thing I found when I really started to, I spent time, I spent almost a decade in Silicon Valley. And the Valley as it was, um, especially um, early, in its early days, was really a place where people just tried to get rid of those types of things. They would, the speed at which you could get introductions, the speed that you could open doors, the speed at which you get referrals, the speed at which you get feedback, the speed at which people join teams. I mean, it's just so remarkably fast in a community like that. And fortunately, that kind of thinking has spread. So you're starting to see that kind of community emerge in lots of places across the country and the world now. Yeah, it's been really amazing to watch. I think you're talking about these death of a thousand cuts. It sounds to me almost like a behavioral economist view of entrepreneurship, the little things, the the nudges or the reverse, you know, nudges in the wrong direction are hurting people. And you also highlighted there the importance of culture to open doors. And I think it's also important, the culture around failure. What's your thought on how to have a positive approach to failure? Uh, I think it's the cultural aspect of it cannot be ignored and it gets ignored a lot. Like if you think about, you know, what, you know, what economists tend to tend to talk about when it comes to the economy and jobs and innovation and products, it's always around numbers, but culture, anyone that spent time in the startup business knows that culture is, you know, if not everything, almost everything, it's a huge part of the life and death of companies. And so the willingness to experiment and fail and, to the ability to rebound from that and for people to look past, you know, your past transgressions and to, to look forward is a huge part of that. And it's, it's, I think this view of around looking at entrepreneurship 
as an as a full ecosystem problem that is all the things that affect entrepreneurs are th- are 360 immersive problem it's not like one thing in the way it's everything that touches the entrepreneur and at the very root of it is the way that people interact and the way that people behave which stems from belief systems and cultural systems and attitudes so i think it's huge and this idea that ecosystems really drive the life of entrepreneurial success and innovation is part of it's it's stuff I've been involved with for a long time now. I wrote a book on ecosystems called the rainforest, which is trying to liken the analogize what happens in entrepreneurial economies uh, with what happens in natural systems like rainforests. And that was inspired by uh, one of my old professors, uh, Edward Wilson, who uh, is considered uh, some call him the greatest biologist in history after Charles Darwin. So he's the number two most influential biologist And he really has been a pioneer at looking at the diversity of ecosystems in nature. And he's told me that he thinks the next big thing is taking the principles of ecosystems and applying them to the rest of society and business and economics at large. And that this is really a big part of the work ahead is how we start to realize that it's more than just a metaphorical analogy. It actually is real, Uh, that the, the full 360 ecosystem effect of an economy actually has a huge role in our own prosperity. Wilson's work is amazing. I've only touched on some of it, including ants and other things. I recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. You were touching on their you know, systems thinking of the ecosystem. You have talked before a lot about the importance of trust, and you were talking about culture. These seem entirely different concepts than the stereotype I might have of current political culture. I think of, you know, the most famous like theorist of a politician might be like Machiavelli, better to be feared, right, than loved. Mm-hmm. And, and you're talking about trust and love and system thinking. How do these two things fit together? It is interesting. I think the, the national pol- political discourse is so toxic. And it, it was fine when it was viewed as entertainment from a distance. I think it's toxic when it gets down to the level of how normal people interact and how communities function and how we think of each other as, as human beings or citizens uh, in, in our worlds. So I think it's a problem. You know, one thing that uh, people have always remarked on, you know, my, I, I came from an immigrant family. My parents were immigrants and I was born in the U.S. when they came here. And it has always been that at the level of individuals, uh, America is actually a remarkable place. If you've traveled much, I've been to over 50 countries. And uh, there's something really special about the way that people in the U.S. will interact with each other. That is uh, quite rare in the world, which is uh, there's a level of openness and trust that happens for strangers in the U.S. and a civility that is is really quite rare. Starting to see that fray a bit. And I've noticed like here where I live in Kansas City, you know, the political national political life starts polarizing people at the local level in a way that I, I hadn't seen before. Before it was always viewed as kind of like, you know, it's like, you know, like you're watching you, you people think of national politics the way they would think of like watching The Bachelor or watching a reality TV show, something that was out there, but not really us. But I think more and more it's affecting us and the way we uh, interact with each other. I, I met a woman recently in New York City. Uh, she was an Asian American professional, middle aged, and she told me she was scared to leave New York to visit other parts of the country because she was afraid of being attacked for being an Asian American. And I was just floored by that because here I am in Kansas City and people are, you know, people are very civil and I haven't felt any kind of 
outward aggression at all. In fact, I've seen most of the aggression in New York, which I just thought was so ironic because in New York was actually where a lot of the anti-Asian aggression was happening. And in places that she was afraid to go to in the middle of the country were places where you really haven't seen as much of that kind of stuff. So I think it, it, what it does is it starts to shape the way we actually behave in the real world towards each other. And that's just really unfortunate. That is unfortunate. You were, you were touching on geography there, and I'm curious, you know, how, how has your thoughts evolved on economic development in regards to geography? Like, does, it, does place matter as much? Can you be 100% remote? How do you think about that as a policymaker? It's, it, it's, it's shifting uh, because pl- place matters less than it did before, but it's not gone, and it probably never will be. And so it's kind of this sliding, complex scale of different interactions between what's local and then what's, what's global. And so much of the digital world, which is obvious, is you know, a-geographical. It kind of rises above geography. But then there's still so much of geography that matters uh, from the relationships, the teams that form locally, the networks that form locally. You know, there's that great work from the economic geographer, Raj Chetty, that talks about how the people that you grow up with down to the level of your city block affects your entire life prospects. And he, he, they mapped out the future incomes of people who lived in parts of New York City that were literally across the street from each other. And if you were on one side of the street, you would end up making half the income of the person on the other side of the street by average over your lifetime, which was just shocking. And, it, and I think that's just very human. Humans still interact at a local level. And so the communities uh, in which we function still matter a lot because they're still face-to-face. But it's also true at the same time, the digital tools are more and more powerful. And there are more and more people who can do different types of work on all these various digital platforms. And you can do it from almost anywhere. And I think the pandemic obviously exacerbated that and made people see you know, I could do what I was doing in place X and place Y and place Y costs a fraction of the cost. And I like the lifestyle I can build there. So I just thought that was, it, it's really a fascinating moment. And I think that interaction between local and, and global or, or non even, you know, beyond any sense of geography is just fascinating. And it's, it, it's always going to, everything's always going to matter, but it's, we're not quite sure where it's all going to end up, to be honest. Right. You hear a lot of talk among the startup ecosystem these days about certain geographies, say Miami's hot right now, you know, is that mainly marketing or are there particular policy choices or things that are different that matter to make one ecosystem better than another? Miami's done a phenomenal job recently and Mayor Suarez has been a big part of that and driving attention to Miami. And then a lot of the people in the community have been really laying the groundwork for the last decade that has caused that place to take off. It wasn't as if the ground wasn't fertile already. And so place still matters because innovative people like to be around other innovative people. And you get that amplification effect from being around other people who can, you can feed ideas, feed off each other and money flows faster and ideas just grow and get better uh, through being around people like that. So it still matters. I'd say if you look at the places around the country, you cannot find a, a mid-sized city in America or, or bigger today that doesn't have some kind of nucleus of entrepreneurial activity happening with a little ecosystem or a bigger ecosystem where you can quickly get into that community and tap into a lot of resources and, and people very, very fast. That's a, that's a huge transformation. A decade ago, you didn't see that. And two decades ago, you had, it was almost non-existent. And so there's, there's been a big shift in geographical change in how they, they work with entrepreneurs. And I think the key has been how quickly can you 
engage within an ecosystem. Yeah, I remember moving to you know some cities in the past, and you go there and you know, trying to tap into the entrepreneurial ecosystem was so hard. You, you couldn't find a right, you know, the right door to open or the onboard system. Or if you did find someone, they were suspicious of you and it took a long time to meet other people. You know, that was just the way it used to be. Now you can go to a place and you can walk into a co-working space or an accelerator or some kind of local meetup organization or whatever. And you can, you can actually tap into these ecosystems faster. So I think the, the one way to look at it is these ecosystems actually become an asset of the community. They are uh, uh, the, you know, the same way that bridges and roads and electrical systems were the infrastructure of the 20th century. Of the 21st century, it's these invisible infrastructures of ecosystems and the relationships and how fast people can on-ramp into those, those knowledge-based, relationship-based infrastructures. And uh, the communities that are doing well are those where they're building that infrastructure and they're being conscious about it and they're doing a good job with it. But it's not just a series of meetups and having a co-working space, right? I mean, Alex Danko talks about Silicon Valley having this culture of investing as angels and individuals as a status symbol, a way to show off, you know, to, to show power by saying yes rather than saying no. And do you think that concept has spread beyond Silicon Valley? Increasingly so, yes, about engagement, right? That that you're, the, the value of your role in the community is not the status that was conferred upon you by virtue of birth or, or wealth. It's the value of what you can do next and how are you contributing to the next thing. And you're seeing that more and more. There are more angel groups that are, have formed in the last 10, 15 years. There's been an explosion of angel groups formed across the country and the world. And a lot of them are entrepreneurs that feel like it's part of their, they, they, it's almost like a moral obligation to get involved and give back and help out next, the next wave of companies. And, uh, you know, one great example in my mind is Fadi Gondur out of Jordan. And he's been probably the most prominent angel investor throughout the Middle East and has been the angel investor who spawned a huge wave of the next great startups across the entire Arab speaking world. And, and not only that, by being who he is and doing what he's doing, he's pulled in all these other angel investors and entrepreneurs and leaders and, 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 and also large corporations that follow that kind of leadership. So the role modeling is a big part of it uh, as people realize, yeah, there's a, there's a way to behave if you've been a successful entrepreneur. You don't just pack up and leave or hide behind gates. You actually stay involved and you're, you're only as worthy as your next big thing, right? And, um, and I think that's actually a really important part of this culture, which is that deep level of engagement that you don't, success is earned every day in the ecosystem. It's never, you're never done. You're never done. You're always working at it. Yeah, I really like this point about almost a moral obligation to get involved and mentor the next generation of startup. Yeah, you yeah. see it in um, in the valley all the time. You know, most I mean, there are some folks that kind of make their fortune and they kind of disappear, but there are a lot of people who who make a fortune or are very successful and they just they stay in it and they put it all right back in. Like I, I mean, the great iconic example is Elon Musk. Who made he took his hundred million dollars or so out of, of PayPal and basically sunk it all back into his next wave of companies, which we all know what those are. But he he put it all back in. Like the guy did not sit on his laurels. He could have anyone else could have taken a hundred million bucks and found somewhere to retire. And he actually put it all back on the line to the point where he was nearly bankrupt again to do it all over, which if you think about it, is so irrational, but so needed and has such a big, big effect on the world. We had one of the Tesla co-founders on an earlier episode, if people want to check that out. 
it is quite an amazing story and he's been involved in other companies too. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Now, taking a step back again, you know, talking about right to start, how do you define success or how do you track your progress towards success? Well, there's a number of issues with entrepreneurial in, as, a, as an issue in America. So first, I guess first look at the problem. The problem is that America was born as a startup nation. It's this, we think of ourselves as the startup nation, this innovative entrepreneurial place. But it's actually in crisis right now. If you look at the data, if you look at the actual state of entrepreneurship in this country, it's in decline and it's in crisis mode. So we've got falling rates of entrepreneurship since the 1970s. We're about generally about half the rate of entrepreneurial activity uh, we were uh, back in the 70s as a nation. And we've seen a, a declining share, a, a very quickly declining share of the population that actually works in small businesses versus large corporations. That is, large corporations are really becoming more and more uh, a dominant place for people to be employed. In fact, it used to be a few decades ago that most people were employed in small businesses. Now most people are employed in large companies. And so, and what that means is that there's fewer people to pass it on. Fewer people know what it's like to be in a small entity uh, and to grow a business versus people that know how to enter and work in a stable state system or a larger, uh, larger entity that already has a lot of the benefits of being large and, and incumbent. So I think the role of the entrepreneur and the ability, and then we see exacerbating inequality as well. Could I hold you there for a second? Because I want to underscore that point. I'm imagining a listener saying, oh, well, maybe some businesses closed during COVID or, you know, we're we're seeing so many startups, it seems like, you know, there's all these companies going public or I hear a lot of VC funding. What do you mean the entrepreneurship is in decline? Can, Can you highlight that a little bit more? Yes. Uh, yeah, there is this disconnect between the public narrative around entrepreneurship being hot and the what the actual data tells us. So it's hot because we see the public stuff that's very visible, which are the high-flying companies, the unicorns. We see TV shows like Shark Tank, where it looks like an endless supply of new entrepreneurs coming up you know, to meet the sharks. But the data is from the census, and that is data where people actually say, yes, I've started a business in the last year. And, and I'm, I'm spending more than, you know, X 15 hours of my time a week on this new business. That's the, that's the, the, the yardstick that the census has kept constant throughout the last 40 plus years. And what we know is there's a disconnect because the companies that are able to get huge backing and scale up really quickly are, it's true. We've actually had a huge explosion of venture backed, of venture, the venture capital industry and venture backed startups across the country building phenomenally important companies that add huge value to the world and transform and disrupt uh, entire industries. So that's really powerful. What's happened though, is that it's become a privileged activity. There are 1%, less than 1% of companies actually get venture capital. And so 80% of businesses or so are five people or less like micro businesses and 90% of businesses are 20 people or less. And so we're actually talking about the businesses that really scale up and grow are like one less than 1% of all of that, that are truly the ones that get the attention. And we've neglected the long tail of our economy, which are the small businesses like Mr. Kaufman starting out building 
his business in 1950 that became a $6 billion company, you know, 30 plus years later. That started out as one of those, you know, 99% companies that people didn't think was going to turn into a, a great growth company, that, but, but it did. Bill Marriott, you know, built Marriott Hotels, which started as a family restaurant. And so family restaurant can become the greatest hotel, hotel chain in the world. You just never know how these things happen. So what's happened is we've neglected the 99% in terms of entrepreneurial opportunity while we've lionized the 1%. And, and we've done a remarkable job with that 1%. And I actually, I, I'm, I don't wanna take away from the power that's had on the world and lifting up so much prosperity, but you can't do one without the other because the system gets imbalanced and you end up with people getting left out. There are huge swaths of our society in America that are left out. It's well documented around people of color and women, women start businesses with half the money, grow at half the rate. Uh, companies started by people of color start with uh, a third of the money and grow to one-tenth the revenue. I mean, there are just these big imbalances. And you look at rural areas and the rural workforce in America, about half the rural workforce in America has dropped out completely out of the workforce because they just, in large part, don't see opportunities. And think about that. I mean, we live in an age now where at, at your fingertips on your phone or your laptop, you have access to more power to create, design, prototype, pilot, test out, manufacture, and distribute almost anything in the world uh, and, it, than in any time in world history. Any individual has that power at their fingertips now to create amazing things and, and create it and sell it to the world. Yet we have huge parts of the workforce that have dropped out that basically say, yeah, I, I can't do that, or I don't know how to do that. So we've got this big disconnect where we, we've actually failed to democratize the means of innovation, and, and it's causing big problems in our society today. So how do we democratize innovation? Well, uh, this is where the right to start came in. So I founded the organization because I really believe that Entrepreneurial opportunity is a fundamental right, just like we've got the right to speech, the right to worship, the right to assemble. We have a right to start. We have a right to be entrepreneurial. It's given to every single individual at birth. It's a God-given right. And it's part of the DNA of America. But the Boston Tea Party, for instance, was an entrepreneur's rebellion. It was not a geopolitical event. It was entrepreneurs saying, we want the right to be able to build our businesses fairly. And so if we have a right, then we've got to fight for it and we've got to protect it and we've got to nurture it. And that should be the role of a society. So every single individual who is alive has the right to be entrepreneurial. And that could mean a whole bunch of ways of doing it, whether it's as an independent worker doing a side hustle or gig worker, or someone that wants to build a billion dollar unicorn enterprise. They're all part of it, but it's a right that everybody has. And what's happened is that that right's, right's been ignored for decades. We've, we've kind of just let it go to waste. And a big part of it is we just took it for granted. We just said, you know, the entrepreneurs will always be there because that's who we are as a society. The entrepreneurs will always help us find a way out of it. And they have, but it's getting harder and harder for them. And there are fewer and fewer of them. And so we've got to ring the alarm and raise this issue. And the way to do it is to make it an issue at the local, state, and federal levels in your communities, in your neighborhoods, in your networks, where everybody knows this is an issue. This becomes a priority across the country. We can enroll you know, hundreds of thousands of supporters who understand this is an issue. We can have people vote on this issue. We can drive policies on this issue. And we can elevate entrepreneurship as something that people care about as a major issue in society and a, and a major crisis in society. Okay. You got me ready to sign up. 
what what does what does the group actually do or or what are the policies that will make a difference so please do sign up and i would love anyone else to join and sign up the website is righttostart.org and there's several things we do we call it change minds change policies and change communities change minds is sharing the story about the importance of entrepreneurship this has got to be something we talk about in our daily lives in many ways i think entrepreneurs often kind of hide their stories when they kind of are outside the entrepreneurial world. And the public generally doesn't care that much about entrepreneurial stories because they think it's somebody else's problem, but it's really all of our problem. And so change minds is get the message out there, spread the word, open people's eyes up to this issue. And that's on each of us to be out there talking about it and to be able to share the stories that we know of the entrepreneurs and what they've been through and how we can help and participate. So everybody needs to be there to spread the message and to help open the eyes up of everybody in society. Another piece is around changing policies. So actively changing the policies at the cities and their states and your counties and your communities and at the federal level for congr- with, through congressional action. But I think by and large, we've tended to, you know, everyone kind of waits around and says, well, somebody should fix that. Somebody else should do that. But really it's, it's us. So what are we doing in our communities? And so talking to your city council person, talking to your state rep, state representative. We've got a set of policies on our website at righttostart.org, which consists of our field guide for policymakers. And it gives people a plan on how to get active, how to participate, and uh, be able to talk to your city leaders and civic leaders about this. So in Missouri, uh, just a few months ago, we were able to uh, help pass the first ever Right to Start Act in the Missouri House of Representatives. And so it's the most comprehensive state legislation ever put together uh, to help entrepreneurs. And it covers a whole range of things from non-compete restrictions to government contracts, uh, to corporate taxes, to opening an office of entrepreneurship in the state of Missouri, to capital access. And putting them all together under a Right to Start Act actually really pulled together a bipartisan coalition from rural and urban that was really unique and unseen before. We're getting ready for the Missouri Senate in the next cycle, and we've got uh, 15 other states that have raised their hands up that said they want to do something similar. So we can do this. We can actually drive policy change uh, at the state and local level. And really, we want to see a groundswell of activity around that. And the third piece is change, uh, change communities. And that's through grassroots engagement, getting people organized, where people uh, are part of the process where they know that they can share their voice and get active and actually change change the way that a society functions through civic engagement. And there's ways to get involved. Just sign up for the, our newsletter uh, at Right to Start. And you can find ways to get involved there. Well, thanks for all that. Your example at the state level, community level, those are clear. Anything going on nationally? I'm, I'm thinking in particular, you know, what are your views on antitrust these days? There's a lot going on nationally. There's probably, there's more happening in the national policy pipeline for entrepreneurs than I've seen in a generation. So at least maybe, and maybe the most ever, at least in several decades since I've seen this work, there's more happening right now for entrepreneurs. And there was the, a big announcement recently by the president through this White House executive order on competitiveness policy. Antitrust is a part of it. And that's been part of a discussion around what are the, what are the fair rules for little companies against big companies. And that's a, a huge issue. And I think a lot of us have seen examples where companies like Amazon have you know, made it harder for little startup companies trying to sell on that platform or you know, have, have been able to take their ideas and, and build them into their own products and uh, things that just make it very hard to be entrepreneurial. So I think the antitrust is just a piece of it, but there were 72 things that were in this executive order. And, and what's really 
interesting and innovative about what's where it's headed is that entrepreneurship is becoming part of what we think of as competitiveness policy. And this is bipartisan. Like this, some, a lot of this legislation and these ideas are being proposed uh, from, uh, from the GOP as well, which is, which is really exciting to see this idea that entrepreneurial activity is considered part of the overall strength of the country and the overall economic power of the country comes from that. So within this executive order, you see this suggestion to the FTC to to ban or limit non-compete agreements, which which essentially hold down 20% of workers uh, from being able to leave those jobs to either start their own business or do something else in their area of specialty, Uh, limit license license requirements or license restrictions. Most of these tend to be at the local and state level. So the federal level can do some of it, but most of it's going to have to be at the state battle, which are uh, about 25% of workers now have some kind of license requirement they have to go to go through in order to actually practice their craft, which is up from what used to be 4% a few decades ago. So there's been this massive growth in licensing requirements for you to even be able to do work. I've heard, for instance, in some states to get licensed for to be a hairdresser requires going through a course that costs $15,000 in several months. So that's just one egregious example of it. But you see this type of example play out in many different realms where it becomes really hard to be able to practice your craft. And, and, and that has an inhib- inhibitory effect on all the entrepreneurship stuff at the front end of the funnel that actually affects the stuff downstream. So there's a lot of work to be done, but you, we see it as more than just antitrust. It really is across the board where we're starting to think about all the, you know, all the million cuts, all the barriers that get in the way in front of entrepreneurs and realize that in the aggregate, that is actually a national security problem. Where do you think healthcare fits in? Uh, it's, healthcare is a huge deal, obviously. And in fact, 20% of people who have thought about becoming an entrepreneur don't actually end up starting a company because of concerns about losing access to healthcare. And that's a one out of every five prospective entrepreneurs in the country drops out because of healthcare issues, which is a huge number. And that works out to probably hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs a year, at least in this country that don't, don't do it, if not more. And I personally have experienced this as well. So in the last couple of years, I left a, a, you know, a full-time job at the Kauffman Foundation to build Right to Start and to do build a consulting practice. And I've had to get health insurance off the, off the uh, ACA marketplace. And without that, I'm not sure what I would have done, you know, if you go back 15 years ago when it didn't exist, I think it would have been, you know, terrifying. And, you know, we've got conditions in the family that make healthcare essential. So it's had a huge effect, but, you know, ACA doesn't cover every case. It doesn't, it's the options are not great in every state. And so it's not perfect. And there's still a lot of people left out of that. And a lot of people that are scared of losing access to good healthcare the moment they step out onto the entrepreneurial journey. So it's a big deal. And how about immigration? Where do things stand with the new administration? And in particular, I'm thinking like the startup visa I've heard talk of years ago. The uh, immigration is a really important. Immigrants start businesses at about three times the rate of non-immigrants. And it's well documented too. Half the Fortune 500 companies were started either by immigrants or children of immigrants. So immigration has had a big effect on the on like it's the seed corn of America. It, it tends to fuel a lot of the, the risk-taking and the innovation that happens across the country. And if you look at the stories of the great companies of even the last you know, one or two decades, so many of them had immigrants uh, behind them. So it tends to get ignored because it gets caught up in national politics about immigration policy, which are obviously huge debates that are very important. But the, the positive effects of immigrants is ten, tends to get lost. In fact, there was research that came out recently that showed 
immigrants on net as a whole across all of society, including across all types of immigrants, actually are net job creators rather than job takers, which is actually counter to a lot of the narrative on immigration. And so uh, immigration is a tough one because it gets lumped in with all these bigger issues around you know, walls and borders and illeg illegality. But if you look at, at on the whole, immigration actually has been positive for our country. And the start of visa is something that the uh, current uh, White House is trying to uh, bring back. So it was instituted at, at, at the executive level by the Obama White House before he left. During the Trump White House, they moved to end it. But now the Biden White House is bringing back the startup visa, which basically allows immigrant entrepreneurs to come to the country if they're going to be starting a business is basically the, basically, basically the rule with lots of caveats and descriptions of what that looks like. But by and large, it, it tends to create jobs. And we've seen in other countries, in Canada and in, in a lot of other countries, they have these types of startup visas to allow entrepreneurs to come to the country. And it's worked out very well in these other places. So it, it makes sense that it would have a positive effect here as well. Anything else you want to share about Right to Start? I just I hope people participate and join. And I guess people have asked me, what is the single biggest change I'd like to see come out of Right to Start? And I mean, yes, there's the policy shifts. Yes, there's the, the organizing and building local communities that are actively pushing this issue. But really, the most important thing is I'd love to see this issue become part of the public narrative. When people talk about what are the top 10 concerns in America, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial opportunities should be in the top 10. It's nowhere near that right now. It's, I don't think it's even in the top 30. It doesn't even poll. It doesn't even register. Even though we know that entrepreneurship is in decline, and we also know how important entrepreneurship is. New businesses account for almost all net growth in jobs. Older businesses tend to net zero or net negative in job growth. That is, they, they kind of shed jobs over time. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Big companies become more efficient and they shed jobs over time. It's the new businesses that create the new jobs. And so if we want jobs, we need more entrepreneurs. The data also, also show that uh, it's tied to uh, GDP. So GDP is actually a, a output of entrepreneurial activity. In fact, you can predict future GDP by looking at uh, entrepreneurial activity at, at points in time uh, and basically predict in advance what GDP will look like. It's actually a very strong correlative effect. We also know that more entrepreneurial activity correlates to lower inequality and lower poverty. In fact, for every one, one, per, one point increase in entrepreneurial activity in a state, there is a corresponding 2% decrease in the poverty rate in a state. So we know that, that there is a big effect on jobs, income, poverty, inequality, yet it hardly gets talked about. And this has to be something that we raise, just like we talk about economics in terms of trade wars and macro policy, we should be talking about economics and prosperity in terms of entrepreneurial creation. Wow, that seems like a great place to end it. I, I really appreciate you coming on today. You've made a strong case for entrepreneurship, and you made a strong case for getting involved in your organization. I hope people do. Well, thank you, Miles. Thank you so much for being part of this really cool podcast you put together. And I, I really appreciate the chance to get the message out. All right. Take care. Thank you, Miles. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, 
please do so on our website.